Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. For the first time in seven decades, a king addressed the British Commonwealth. The lead starts right now. Honoring the Queen. The royal family's meticulous plans laid out as an official period of mourning begins, and Britons show up in droves to honor the late Queen Elizabeth II. Plus, King Charles III begins his reign, delivering his first official address as the world watches to see what kind of leader he might be. And in the U.S., pressing for answers in Uvalde, Texas, CNN asking the state's top law enforcement officer why did he allegedly say no one is losing their jobs over the massacre at Robb Elementary? His answer, you'll only see here. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead and the first full day on the job for King Charles III as the world mourns the death of his mother, Britain's longest reigning monarch. This afternoon, King Charles addressed the nation and the world for the first time since Queen Elizabeth's passing. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. That address was followed by a ceremony of remembrance at St. Paul's Cathedral, where the new British national anthem, God Save the King, was officially sung. Earlier today, upon returning to London, King Charles and his wife Camilla, the Queen Consort, greeted crowds outside of Buckingham Palace where mourners have been leaving flowers and tributes. And the King met with the brand new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, where the King was overheard saying that he had been dreading the death of his mother, the Queen. At the moment I've been dreading, as, as I know a lot of people have, but I'm trying to keep everything going. CNN's Bianca Nobilo starts off our coverage from London today with more on King Charles' pledge to the nation and the new tributes pouring in for Queen Elizabeth II. A kiss of approval for a new king. King Charles III arriving to applause at Buckingham Palace. Flowers lay just feet away, mourning his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. The cheers reassuring for a king who's not always enjoyed the country's full support as Prince of Wales. Commencing his reign, there was no time to show his personal grief. His first act to greet and reassure his subjects, an early hint of his sovereign style. And wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, 
I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. A new era of the British crown begins as the world grieves the late queen. The first day of royal mourning in the UK, which will last until seven days after the funeral, is one of deep remembrance. The other new leader, British Prime Minister Liz Truss, just four days into her role, met with the new king and led tributes in the House of Commons. Her late majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, was one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known. She was the rock on which modern Britain was built. We need that courage now. In an instant yesterday, our lives changed forever. Today, we show the world that we do not fear what lies ahead. Truss also attended the first service for the British public at St Paul's Cathedral in London. Members of the royal family are back in England to prepare for King Charles III's accession ceremony on Saturday. The burden is heavy. King Charles III faces rising republicanism, the task of consolidating the monarchy in the modern age and carving his own identity in the long shadow of his much-beloved mother. Jake, I'm here outside St Paul's Cathedral where earlier thousands of members of the public joined together to remember and say prayers for the late Queen Elizabeth II. And I spoke to those who attended the service and they had come from as far as Argentina, Italy, America, Australia. They happened to be in the country. It was first come, first serve and they wanted to be a part of that historic moment. So that's how the day ended. The day began with tributes in the Houses of Parliament, led by the Prime Minister, the Opposition Leader and former Prime Ministers like Boris Johnson. And for once, all of them sung from the same hymn sheet. They were magnanimous, they were open-hearted, they were revealing of their own emotions. Boris Johnson even spoke about being brought to tears at the mere thought of the Queen passing away. And Jake, there simply is not another figure that could have the global reach that I saw at St Paul's and have the ability to unite the Houses of Parliament other than the late Queen Elizabeth II. She is simply monarchic lightning in a bottle. Bianca Nabila in London, thank you so much for that report. North now to Balmoral Castle in Scotland. CNN's Issa Suarez is there. Issa, the Queen's body remains at Balmoral as this period of mourning begins. So what comes next? Good evening, Jake. Well, as you can see, the temperatures have dropped. The light has gone as well. But can we continue to see a stream of people coming in to pay their respects to the Queen. Of course, like you shared, she still remains at Balmoral, uh, a residence, a place of refuge that she really felt like she could be herself. 50,000 acres here in beautiful highlands where she walked her corgis, where she drove her Land Rover, where really she was away from the limelight and really part of the community. But behind, of course, inside that residence at Balmoral, uh, it's also family grieving. Uh, a family lost their mother uh, and lost them uh, an also matriarch, I think it's so important to mention. We have, we know that inside still is Prince Andrew, Prince Edward, uh, Edward and Princess Anne. They are still inside. In the last 20 minutes, we saw a car drove in. Of course, it's pitch black, so we couldn't tell, but it's the first car we've actually seen enter the residence uh, so far today. After we're 
know that the Queen is expected to stay at Balmoral for some two days uh, before then being taken to, uh, to Edinburgh, to the cathedral, St. Giles Cathedral, where she will lie in rest. Jake? Uh, Isa, how was the King's speech received uh, by the individuals you spoke with near Balmoral Castle today? I think the majority, Jake, I think uh, was very well received. People said that it was emotional, it was warm, it was touching, but clearly a son deeply grieving. Uh, majority of people I spoke to said uh, clearly he had huge shoes to fill. Um, but, and even one person said to me, you know, I hope he's half as good as his mother. Have a listen to what one lady told me. I think stepping into the shoes of such a legacy is going to be incredibly difficult. You know, he very clearly wants to be his own person. And I think we need to give him the opportunity to do that as well, because, you know, it's very easy for us to very quickly judge. But actually, just like anyone, we need to give him our time and support. And while people on the whole are, of course, ecstatic to have uh, a new king, many people said to me today that we need time to reflect and pause on really 70 years of service by the Queen. One person telling me they think it's all happening too quickly. Jake? Issa Suarez at Balmoral Castle in Scotland. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss is CNN Royals historian Kate Williams. Kate, let's start with King Charles' first public act as King greeting the crowds outside Buckingham Palace earlier today. We have to be frank here. Charles has not always been hugely popular among the British public, but I wonder if you think he has an opportunity here to turn that around. Yes, I think he has. And I think that Charles really, he, we all know he's sincere. We all know he's thoughtful. We all know he's someone who thinks very deeply. But what we haven't seen from him is a real sense of heart. And he spoke today. He spoke from the heart. He talked about trying to serve the country with love. And really, I think that's what came across today. He, a lady just reached out and sort of grabbed him and kissed him. And, and Charles really seemed very, very, very in for that. And I think that this uh, this is really going to win people over, that if Charles doesn't seem stiff upper lip, if he seems someone who's there to, uh, you know, share share grief and share this moment with the people, that's going to be really important. So I do think that his focus today in that very good, very significant speech in which he very much said he wants to continue his mother's legacy of service, of devotion, of love, of respect, and really call to mind her warmth, talk about her a brilliant ability to see the best in people that I think was coming out today that he too is seeing the best in people being warm and I don't think being warm as you say Jake was something he's found very easy but clearly he, he's getting in touch with it here and I think that's because he's so touched by the outpouring of support and sympathy and all the love for his mother I think he really has found it very touching and very comforting in, the, in these difficult times. King Charles also reflected in his speech on how much the Commonwealth has changed during his mother's 70-year reign. Take a listen. We have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. The institutions of the state have changed in turn. But through all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms of whose talents, traditions and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud have prospered and flourished. 
Now, we know Britain is dealing with some serious issues now, including high inflation, soaring energy costs, the possibility of a recession. You have a brand new prime minister. Is it possible that King Charles is trying to position himself as something of a unifier here? Yes, I think he is trying to position himself as a unifier. As you say, we are on the brink of recession here. Energy prices, the effects of the global conflict crisis have caused great energy prices, huge inflation running at past uh, 13%, I think the latest estimate is. So we are in quite difficult times in Britain. And I think Charles here is, t- is really focusing, as he said, on the, the family, the wider family realms, because, Jake, this is Charles's big challenge as a monarch, not just the situation that we're in in Britain, but also the future of the Commonwealth and the future of the other countries of which the monarch is head of state. The monarch is head of state of 15 countries. Last year, Barbados decided they no longer wish the monarch to be head of state. We've heard Australia say the same, Jamaica, um, Antigua, um, Belize. There's been generally, I, I think, and they all said that once the Queen was no longer here, these were discussions, they would really accelerate. And I think in the next few years, we'll see many countries no longer have the monarch of head of state. And I think the Commonwealth, 54 nations, 2.1 billion people, so important to the Queen, her, her real abiding legacy, I, I think that's going to change because to many members of the Commonwealth, it was a sense of unity, but to them, it, many of them feel it's founded in the in the oppression of empire, the exploitation of empire. And there are other countries they wish to ally with, not Britain, but other countries across the world. So we will see, I think, the Commonwealth fragment. And I think that Charles will be head of very few, very fewer countries than his mother was. And that is his big challenge to oversee that transition in a in a really in a really way that celebrates independence. Yeah. Let's talk about that, because there has been some criticism uh, in the last couple of days, uh, not specifically of the Queen, but the Queen is a figurehead for the UK and, and imperialism, colonialism. The South African opposition party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, put out a statement that said in part, quote, we do not mourn the death of Elizabeth because to us her death is a reminder of a very tragic period in this country and Africa's history. During her 70-year reign as queen, she never once acknowledged the atrocities that her family inflicted on Native people that Britain invaded across the world, unquote. How should Charles go about addressing this, do you think? William and Kate made a visit to the Caribbean, and this was not a successful royal visit. Many people felt that it was colonial in tone and look. They travelled in a sort of back of a large car, and it looked very colonial, and they didn't really talk about, they didn't apologise for slavery. And also, there's been a scandal more recently in Britain where those who came over from Jamaica post-war to rebuild the country, and the children who came over with them, just tiny children, who thought they were British citizens, suddenly... 2011, 2012, the British government tried to deport them. This is called the Windrush scandal. That caused a lot of anger across the Caribbean that people who always thought of themselves as British suddenly were being deported. And I think really um, this should have been acknowledged during the visit. So what we are going to see, I think, is Charles really having to discuss this question of slavery, of perhaps reparations, and also of the suffering that countries have been through this great exploitation under empire. Kate Williams, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Just in, Britain's ambassador to the U.S. just greeted uh, well-wishers outside the British Embassy here in Washington, D.C. She is now, at this moment, headed here to this studio, and I will speak with her in our next hour. Plus, CNN catching up with a woman who dared to kiss the new king as he greeted the crowds in London today. We're also standing by for significant court filings as a deadline approaches, and the U.S. Justice Department and Trump lawyers clash over those documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. Stay with us.
And we're back in our world lead. Just moments ago, we heard from the British ambassador to the United States outside the embassy here in Washington, D.C. She was also a very human person. She was a remarkable uh, individual. She had a fantastic sense of humor and an amazing ability to get right to the heart of the matter. British Ambassador Dame Karen Pierce uh, will join me right here on The Lead, live in our next hour. We're also learning heads of state from around the world, including President Biden, are expected to attend the Queen's funeral service when it is scheduled. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House. Caitlin, what do we know about whether President Biden will travel to the U.K. for this funeral? Well, Jake, President Biden says he does plan to go to the funeral. Obviously, key details like when the funeral is actually going to be held still remain to be seen. But President Biden did confirm to reporters today as he was on his way to Ohio that he is going to go to the Queen's funeral. He said he has not spoken yet with King Charles, as he is now known, but he says he does know him, Jake. So that's another conversation we wait to see as well, given we know he did speak with the British prime minister, the new prime minister, Liz Truss, early yesterday morning as the reports about the Queen's health were just coming in. Now, Jake, when the president goes, he will likely be part of an official delegation. Obviously, this is something that they are closely organizing here at the White House to follow protocol for that. But also, it remains to be seen who goes with President Biden. And one thing to watch is whether or not we're going to see this reunion of what's known as the President's Club. All the living presidents who often gather at events as monumental as something like this one for the Queen's funeral. And those are something that we are told, my colleague Jeff Zeleny has told, it's not likely to be individual invitations to each of the living presidents. Instead, it'll be one invitation to the United States, and President Biden will ultimately make that decision, Jake. But, of course, the White House, they are still waiting on the formal invitation, and then they will make those decisions. Some tough decisions to make there. Caitlin Collins at the White House, thank you so much. Much of life across the United Kingdom was on pause today as Britain enters an official period of mourning. Major stores in the London Zoo are closed. Sporting events have been postponed. Concerts and award ceremonies delayed. CNN's Matthew Chance is outside Buckingham Palace in London. And Matthew, you've been speaking to mourners there all day. What have you heard from them? What's been their message? Yeah, it's incredible. In fact, you join me now, Jake, right at the gates of Buckingham Palace. You can see the palace lit up in the background. And then there is this, you know, sea of bouquets of flowers that have been laid by the thousands upon thousands of people that are thronging uh, these gates to pay their respects. There's, there's, of course, grief at the loss of this sort of iconic figure, the sadness as well, but the overwhelming sentiment being respect, uh, being uh, expressed here is one of gratitude. It was a day of grief for these mourners, the first without their beloved queen. A sea of flowers lined Buckingham Palace, a symbol of Elizabeth II's strongest legacy the affection and respect she inspired in people's hearts. She's just been a part of our life, for all of our lives, apart from anyone that was born before her. So she's just been that constant strength and a rock, really, throughout any bad times throughout our lives. For most here, Queen Elizabeth was the only monarch they've ever known. Some even comparing her death to losing a member of their own family. We can see there is this enormous outpouring of grief, sadness, I think overwhelmingly respect from people in Britain towards Queen Elizabeth now that she's passed. People at the gates of Buckingham Palace here, it's actually thronging with thousands of people. They're coming to lay flowers as they're sort of stacking them up, you know, outside the gates of Buckingham Palace and laying messages as well like this one here. It says, 
address to the Queen, obviously, thank you for all you've done for the people of the world. May you rest in peace. Indeed, a Queen of many countries. The monarch who ruled over 15 nations as well as Britain and touched the hearts of the millions of people who respected her. The same people now mourning her loss across the globe. But this was also a day of renewal to celebrate a new sovereign. It was an apprehensive King Charles III who met his new subjects for the first time as their monarch. And his welcome was encouraging and warm. He even received an out-of-protocol kiss from a member of the public. A memorable moment indeed as he became king. The succession may be automatic in Britain's system of monarchy, but what's not automatic is the transfer of respect his mother enjoyed as the head of state. King Charles III will have to work to achieve the same place as his mother in the hearts and minds of the British public. <laughs> Sorry, that's just... That's just really got to me. I'll never, ever sing God Save the Queen again. And she's just meant so much to this entire country for so long. It's like the tectonic plates of our society have shifted and they'll never be the same. Never. From now on, it's God Save the King. And for a younger generation, Charles III will have to become their symbol of the British crown. Well, Jake, there you have it. Um, a lot of people still right here outside the gates of Buckingham Palace laying some of their flowers, paying their respects. Let me give you a quick overview of some of the messages. Um, this card over here, look, it's just a thank you card saying thank you very much. Love the Price family um, who have come, taken the time to come out here. This, um, this message here, obviously written by somebody very young. I hope you had a nice time at England and, having, uh, and being the Queen, uh, which is a quite nice little message from a child. So it just shows you uh, that, you know, young and old, there's been this incredible outpouring of gratitude uh, for Queen Elizabeth II. But of course, now the country is looking at you know, embracing its new king, uh, King Charles III as well. Jake. Matthew Chance outside Buckingham Palace. Thank you so much. Coming up next, CNN confronts the top cop of Texas about the Uvalde massacre. Were there efforts to protect the jobs of police officers it's before an investigation is complete? You'll see his answer only here on CNN. In our national lead, a CNN exclusive for you now, the leader of Texas's top law enforcement agency privately told law enforcement officers last month that, quote, no one is losing their jobs, unquote. That in reference to the inept, some say cowardly response, or lack thereof, to the Uvalde school massacre in which 19 children and two teachers were murdered. That account is according to the official minutes of an internal meeting obtained by CNN. CNN Shimon Prokopas tracked him down and confronted him over his private reassurance to his officers. People have accused you of being part of a cover-up. That's correct. That's fine. Do, do you disagree with that? Absolutely. It has been three and a half months since the Uvalde massacre, since the failed police response that left the gunman alone in a classroom full of children and their teachers for over an hour. In that time, anger at the Texas Department of Public Safety has only grown. The agency had 91 officers who responded. None has lost their job or faced any consequences. 
DPS officials never fully answered any of the lingering questions about its officers' actions that day. Not to furious parents, to an angry town mayor, or to any reporters until now. First of all, there's no cover-up. And the bottom line is, as soon as we can, we'll release everything. But it needs to be done, sir. The hey, families are starving for done. information. It'll be done when the district attorney says so. This week, two DPS officers were suspended with pay and referred for formal investigation by the inspector general. The department said three others will also be investigated. CNN tracked down DPS Director Stephen McCraw after obtaining minutes from an internal meeting held in August. These minutes seem to paint a very different picture than the pledge of full accountability the DPS chief has given publicly. And, oh, by the way, the minutes quote him, no one is losing their jobs. Quite the contrary, all leaders in Region 3 did what they were supposed to do and have stepped up to meet the moment. And you said no one is losing their jobs. No, I didn't say that. You're denying that you said that. I'm denying that I said that. You're denying that you said that I, no I one is losing their jobs. Victor is not losing his job. Just Victor Escalon. Yeah. Victor Escalon is the DPS regional director for South Texas. He can be seen in the hallway at Robb Elementary and in the days after he repeatedly helped deliver incorrect information to the media. Before this, McCraw has not given any extensive interviews since the May 24 atrocity. He became a public face of the law enforcement response in the days after. First, at a table with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, when the efforts of officers were praised. Law enforcement was there. They did engage immediately. Then, at a later news conference when he admitted to the police failure. For the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, of course it was not the right decision. And in Texas Senate testimony when he called the operation a, quote, abject failure. I don't care if you have flip-flops and, and, and wearing Bermuda shorts. It doesn't matter. You go in. McCraw's comments put him in the middle of a vastly changing narrative that left him and his department open to criticism by the Uvalde mayor, victims' families, and local politicians. I think it's important. I, I, I can't think of any more important thing. And that's why, people, nothing, that's why people think more. there's a cover-up, because no one is talking about what happened. When I get, we get the ability to, to talk to them, and we'll, I'll go by, line by line in terms of, of what trooper did what, okay? But not just what trooper, what DPS officer. We, hey, we'll be entirely transparent. The public will have it. They'll, they'll, have, they'll have excruciating details in terms of what we did, you know, when we did it, and, and those gaps. And like I said, what we're not going to do is we're not going to give anybody an opportunity to undermine the criminal investigation. Now, McCraw says he'll resign if his agency was shown to have culpability for the botched response. Hey, I'll be the first to resign, okay? I'll be gladly resign or attend my resignation to the governor, okay, if I think there's any culpability on the Department of Public Safety, period, okay? But we're going to hold our officers accountable. No one gets a pass, but every officer is going to be held accountable. And Jake, you know, the statements in those leaked minutes, of course, are raising fa concerns now with family members. We are just getting this statement in from a representative for the family, family members, several of the family members who said that they are, quote, disheartened and angry to hear that Texas DPS Chief McGraw believes that his officers, quote, stepped up to the moment. They say that the referral of only five officers to the Texas IG is a slap in the face to our families. We have been calling for transparency and accountability since day one, and the DPS chief's leaked statement does nothing to instill in us that trust will happen. And the other thing, Jake, of course, the families, they want to meet with him. They want to meet with this chief so that they can get some information. 
He told me he will at some point meet with them. We'll see if he keeps his word. But I do think it would go a long way for many of these families if they could hear from him directly, Jake. All right, Shimon Prokopes in Uvalde, Texas. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Great reporting. We're expecting to see court filings soon from the Justice Department and lawyers for Donald Trump. How might this impact the Mar-a-Lago documents case? That's next. In our politics lead, the Justice Department and Donald Trump's lawyers are up against a midnight deadline to submit a list of names and ground rules for a special master to go through the documents seized last month at Mar-a-Lago. But as CNN's Pamela Brown reports for us now, the Justice Department is appealing that judge's ruling. The Justice Department is fighting to keep its criminal investigation and a damage assessment into highly classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago to continue uninterrupted. They want the injunction to stop so that they can continue their investigation and their criminal action, potential criminal action, again, against Donald Trump. Justice Department lawyers are urging the Trump-appointed judge, who ordered a third party to review what was seized from Trump's Florida estate, to reconsider temporarily blocking the FBI from accessing those documents. She says, hey, these documents are so dangerous, we're going to allow the intelligence community to do a damage assessment. But FBI, DOJ, you can't look at them. But the director of national intelligence, April Haynes, says the judge's ruling actually put the brakes on the intel community's assessment of any damage to national security. She stopped investigating the potential fallout from missing top secret papers until this is sorted out in court. And the Justice Department is throwing Judge Aileen Cannon's own words back at her, writing in a court filing that the judge said in her own order it, quote, was not intended to impede the classification review and or intelligence assessment. But the DOJ is arguing that the intel community can't do it alone and that unless the FBI and DOJ are allowed to access the documents and work on that damage assessment, quote, the government and the public would suffer irreparable harm. DOJ also pointing to the empty folders marked classified, found at Mar-a-Lago, saying its hands are tied. Quote, the FBI would be chiefly responsible for investigating what materials may have once been stored in these folders and whether they may have been lost or compromised. Justice Department lawyers are warning Judge Cannon they are, quote, likely to succeed on the merits if they appeal to the 11th Circuit, which they will do by next Thursday if she doesn't allow their investigation to go forward. If DOJ appeals eventually, it would be overturned. I hope they expedite it, but it could, it could, could take several months to get that straightened out. Now, the deadline for this joint submission from both DOJ and Trump's lawyers is midnight tonight. And in this submission, there will be things such as lists of who each side wants to be the special master and how they believe this process should proceed. You can imagine, Jake, given how this has played out so far, they will come to the table with different visions um, for how they want this process to proceed. But the judge said once this filing comes in, that she will make an expeditious uh, decision on how this process is going to go. Well, the person's going to have to have very high security clearance, I would think, given this documents. Absolutely. All right, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Let's bring in Ellie Honig. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney. Um, Ellie, what do you expect from tonight's filing from the Trump folks? Can the Justice Department and Trump's legal team possibly agree on names uh, for one of them to be special master? 
Well, Jake, we'll see one of two scenarios tonight. It's possible that the parties come to the judge and say, we were just unable to agree on anything or of anything of substance. And therefore, the judge is going to have to do what judges do all the time, which is decide between competing positions between the parties. There also is a possibility, however, that they reach a middle ground. DOJ sort of laid this out yesterday in their motion for a stay and a motion for a pause, essentially, where DOJ basically said of the 11,000 documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago, the ones we care about most are the 100 or so classified documents And judge, if you let us use those documents, then we'll likely be okay with the special master going through the other 10,900 or so documents. That strikes me as the best possibility for some sort of compromise. If this ends up in a full out legal fight, uh, what are the Justice Department's chances of winning? And and do you think that's what's going to happen? Well, Jake, if this goes up on appeal, the Justice Department is going to be in a tough circuit here. They're in the 11th Circuit, which covers federal cases out of Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. There is a Republican conservative-leaning tilt on that court. Seven of the 11 current judges on that circuit were appointed by Republicans, six of them by Donald Trump. If you look at the merits of the arguments here, DOJ has a strong argument to some extent that executive privilege probably does not apply to these documents. But the problem with this executive privilege is we don't have a lot of black and white. There's not not a whole lot of law on this. It doesn't come up a whole a whole lot. And so I think, Dio, uh, excuse me, uh, Trump's response here is going to be, this is an issue for the district court. This is about case management and there's no reason to overturn it. Ellie, on this show a few weeks ago, you predicted that Trump had a reasonable chance of this judge granting his request for a special master. And I noted that a bunch of MSNBC legal commentators uh, attacked you Uh, Have they apologized at all? Have have they acknowledged that they were wrong and you were right? Uh, No, Jake. I mean, I have thick skin. You sort of grow that as a prosecutor. Look, if you strip out the politics and look at this thing objectively, and we, we had this story right as it broke. And if you understand how real district courts, trial courts work, to me, it seemed like Donald Trump's request was not unreasonable, was not unprecedented, and that he had a reasonable chance to succeed. That's what's happened now. There's more to come on the appeal, but we're trying to call it right down the middle here, Jake, and uh, that's all I ever aim to do. I guess some legal commentators have a difficult time stripping out the politics. Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate thanks, it. Jake. New gains for Ukraine and soldiers staking their claim in territory once held by Russia. Up next, the show of force that has impressed even U.S. officials. Stay with us. In our world lead, we are following significant and frankly startling progress in Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive against Vladimir Putin's Russian forces. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky claims his military has liberated at least 20 settlements in this counteroffensive, which is aimed at choking off the Russians' supply lines into the northeastern part of the country. We're seeing pictures showing Ukrainian troops holding their flag in front of a sign showing they're on the outskirts of Kupiansk. In another, a Ukrainian flag flies atop a flagpole while Ukrainian soldiers stand on a Russian flag that's just been hauled down. U.S. officials are taking notice. We've all been impressed by what we've seen. Uh, they're their willingness to stand up to a much larger, much stronger force and be effective in their efforts. Even as they're making progress, they're bearing real costs. This is likely to go on for some significant period of time. That is the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State. CNN Sam Kiley is in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Uh, tell us more about this counteroffensive. Are these Ukrainian gains really significant? They are significant, uh, Jake. Uh, What we've seen is this uh, southern 
uh, counteroffensive that you and I have talked about over the last uh, week or 10 days. And then just in the last three or four days, a sudden escalation in the pre-existing counteroffensive uh, in the north, in Kharkiv province. Now, this is critical because uh, it is in the north and the east where the Ukrainian forces had been under the most pressure. That is where there was a very serious concentration of Russian forces. This counterattack has been very, very swift. President Zelensky talking there uh, about 20 or 30 uh, settlements being liberated. Uh, we've heard from our own military sources that number could be more than double that. Uh, they're talking about having captured some 500 square kilometers uh, in about two days. So significant advances, which are uh, uh, significant because they, they sever or they, they potentially can sever the supply lines from Russia proper uh, down towards the front line, down to the city of Izium. And that is a crucial city. It lies on the main uh, east-west road from Kharkiv to Kramatorsk. You'll recall Kramatorsk is in that in that salient, getting absolutely hammered there in the east. And if the Ukrainians can break that supply line, can push the Russians back from there, they have a real chance of breaking uh, the dynamic that is supporting the whole Russian effort. They have a real effort, chance in the north and now is also in the south of setting the Russians back in a significant way that they couldn't really recover from potentially, Jake. And Sam, obviously you're in Zaporizhia, Ukraine, right near the nuclear power plant. What's the latest there on that story? Well, the, the, the IAEA, the nuclear watchdog that has two monitors on the ground now at that nuclear power station has joined the Ukrainian government officials in saying that the danger is that that nuclear power station may have to be shut down. And that is because it's now more than 36 hours since it has lost power going into the nuclear power station. That is power from a traditional power station to, to drive the cooling systems. That means that uh, if those cooling systems break down, in other words, the diesel generators that are running them at the moment run out of gas or break down, there's a risk of a meltdown. Uh, and that is something that is clearly catastrophic, something close to Fukushima or Chernobyl. So there is a deep danger there, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Today, Britain's now King Charles named his oldest son, William, the new Prince of Wales. What this means for the succession to the throne, including Harry and Meghan's kids. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, an investigative reporter stabbed to death outside his home in Las Vegas and a politician whom he'd been covering charged with his murder. What DNA evidence might reveal about key moments before the murder and leading this hour. Formal ceremonies beginning to honor Queen Elizabeth II. Today, President Biden confirms he'll attend her funeral. And with the Queen's remains still at her beloved summer residence in Scotland, what we're now learning about the elaborate ceremonies for the UK to say goodbye and usher in King Charles III. CNN's royal correspondent Max Foster is in London for us, covering the first of dozens of events marking the Queen's remarkable legacy, including today's address to the world from the new king. In a pre-recorded address to the nation and the Commonwealth, King Charles III renewed the pledge made by his mother more than 75 years ago. Speaking for the first time as sovereign, Charles reached out to all religions and creeds. 
he paid a glowing tribute to wife Camilla and bestowed his former title, Prince of Wales, on his son, William, making Kate the Princess of Wales. He expressed his love for Harry and Meghan. Most powerfully and holding back tears, he addressed his mother directly. To my darling mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Throughout the day on Friday, bells tolled. Flags lowered and guns saluted, paying respects to the life and the legacy of Queen Elizabeth II. The UK's newly appointed Prime Minister Liz Truss offered newly anointed King Charles the support of an unusually quiet and sombre Parliament. The Crown endures, our nation endures, and in that spirit I say... God save the king. The king greeted well-wishers outside Buckingham Palace to a chorus of the national anthem. God save our gracious king. He retired to Buckingham Palace, where he held his first audience with the Prime Minister. And for the first time, the royal standard flew above in his name. The Accession Council will meet on Saturday to formally proclaim Charles as the new sovereign, having declared his loyalty to Parliament and the Church of England. Whether the monarchy will emerge strengthened from the handover remains to be seen but the initial signs appear positive. One of the big concerns about King Charles was that he would be a meddling king. You'll know, Jake, that there's been accusations that he's been sending letters to ministers, getting involved in sensitive issues, something that he can't do as monarch, something that the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen, never did. Uh, but there was, he touched on that as well to reassure people. It's quite a complex speech, but he touched on lots of issues. He said, I will no longer, it will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. So he's going to follow in his mother's line and stay apolitical when many people had feared he'd become this meddling prince. Hmm. Max Foster at Buckingham Palace, thank you so much. Very interesting. Now over to Scotland, where Her Majesty took her final breaths at the Scottish Castle, Balmoral, widely believed to be Queen Elizabeth's favorite getaway. Let's take you there now with CNN's international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, who's right outside the castle. And Nick, the Queen's remains are still there, um, but there will be another stop in Scotland before she heads back to England. 
There will be. She will go to Edinburgh over the next couple of days. The precise timing isn't clear at the moment. And when she's in Edinburgh, she'll be in Holyrood House, also known as Holyrood Palace, the official residence of the British monarch in Scotland. Um, she will rest there. Her body will rest there uh, for a day or so. Then she'll go to St Giles, St. Giles Cathedral, where there'll be a service, uh, a memorial service for her, attended by royals and other dignitaries and only after a couple of days in Edinburgh will she actually then travel down to London where she's expected to lie in state and as as King Charles indicated earlier on today um, in a little over a week's time there will be a funeral and of course this was a place that she found comfort that she enjoyed the Queen had many large estates Windsor Sandringham but it was here at Balmoral that she had the raw and rugged beauty of the Scottish countryside enjoyed the walks enjoyed driving the Land Rover uh, enjoyed uh, the country pursuits stalking fishing the, the River Dee you can hear behind me just now is once one of the great salmon rivers of Scotland those salmon have not been as plentiful as they used to be and the Queen was one of the early adopters of catch and release of salmon fishing and that is something began on the east coast here in Scotland it's now on the west coast and is a big thing for all fishermen here the queen and early adopter that cons- conservation spirit the awareness of nature and the countryside around her these were the things that she cherished uh, and and this perhaps is one of the reasons why it, it's people understand that she was comfortable here. She liked it here, and perhaps for people around here, no surprise that this is where she, she passed her last days. All right, Nick Robertson in Scotland, thank you so much. Let's bring in the British ambassador to the United States. We're honored to have with us in the studio, Dame uh, Karen Pierce. Thank you so much for being here. It's good to see you again. Uh, I'm sorry uh, that it's under these circumstances. Our deepest condolences to you and the thank people you. of the UK. Um, so you were just greeting mourners uh, who had come to the embassy uh, in Washington, D.C., right on Massachusetts Avenue with your big statue of Winston Churchill outside. Um, What did the mourners have to say? Were they American? Were they British? What what did they tell you? Most of them were American. A couple were were British. Uh, They came because they said they felt it was a momentous moment. Uh, They wanted to pay their respects to someone they also knew uh, as the Queen, uh, and they wanted to do it out of friendship and solidarity with the U.K. All of that we appreciate very much. It is a period of uh, change and maybe even some instability. You just had uh, a new prime minister accepted. Now you have a a new monarch, uh, the king. How are the people of the UK doing during this unsettling time? Um, I think it may be unprecedented to have a new monarch and a new prime minister in the same week. Yeah. Um, But I also think it very important that one of the Queen's last official acts uh, was to receive the new Prime Minister, and if you like, establish the new Prime Minister. I think that's continuity. Your broadcast earlier referred to the speech that King Charles gave today. I think if you read that speech, if you listen to it, uh, what it is is a a new statesman uh, coming to the throne uh, with a different persona than he had as Prince of Wales and pledging to continue the Queen's legacy of service, uh, of duty to the British people and the Commonwealth. So I think in that sense, they are determined, and rightly so in in my view, to reassure people uh, of the trend of Britain. We we heard, we learned today that President Biden does intend to go to the funeral. I can't even imagine the size and pageantry of this funeral. There truly has been no one like 
uh, Queen Elizabeth in the last century or so, reigning for 70 years, uh, knowing more than a dozen U.S. presidents, something like 15 uh, prime ministers, seven popes, etc. What will it mean to the people of the U.K. for President Biden, perhaps other former U.S. presidents to come? Uh, People will be very honoured to see President Biden and other world leaders. We do expect a large number uh, of world leaders. There are Commonwealth leaders uh, as well. Of course, the Queen was very proud uh, of how the Commonwealth had developed, uh, very proud that um, now King Charles uh, will take over as head of the Commonwealth. President Biden did us the honour of coming to the embassy yesterday uh, to sign the condolence book. That has been greatly appreciated back in the UK. So people will look forward to welcoming him, even as they know it's a sad occasion. The, um, a lot of critics of the UK uh, and the monarchy have, have seized upon this moment to, to criticize uh, both the Queen uh, and um, the UK's past. Um, a Harvard professor who specializes on the British Empire wrote this in the New York Times, quote, The Queen helped obscure a bloody history of decolonization whose proportions and legacies have yet to be adequately acknowledged. Uh, what is it like to hear criticisms like that at this time? Uh, is it, do you think it's unfair? Uh, do you think it's, it's uh, mean? Is it, is it also just an opportunity for the UK to, to turn a page? I think I'd agree with what Boris Johnson said at the time of Black Lives Matter. You can't pretend to have a different history. The thing to do is to confront the history uh, in all its good things uh, and its bad. I would like to point out that the Queen did preside over the translation of the British Empire into the Commonwealth. Uh, I would say that was a tremendous uh, transition and very much a positive one. Uh, she presided over uh, the way countries became independent uh, after the Second World War and then joined the Commonwealth from choice. I think that's important as well. And she united uh, the Commonwealth t- together. She didn't have any executive action. She wasn't a government official. Uh, she was a constitutional monarch. Uh, she is not directly responsible in that sense right, of course. for what has, what has happened. But still the symbol. The, definitely the symbol, but much beloved within the Commonwealth. Right. I, I would point to that. You know, ask the governments, ask the people of the countries of the Commonwealth, and I think overwhelmingly the view would be positive. The last thing I'd just like to mention, if I may, uh, the Queen did know a lot about forgiveness, uh, and I would point to her visit to Ireland and to Northern Ireland Uh, where she met Martin McGuinness and started a new chapter uh, in that province's uh, relations, intercommunal relations. Right, and people who don't know the history, um, maybe they saw it on the crown or or whatever, but uh, the the late Prince Philip, his his father was it? His uncle. His uncle was killed uh, by an Irish terrorist, and the Queen going to Ireland and and accepting forgiveness was a a big moment for relations. Absolutely. Um, You tweeted that her legacy, the Queen's legacy of one, of, quote, charity and compassion. What do you think King Charles's legacy will be? He starts, as he himself has said, in a different place because he is older than, obviously, his mother was. Right, he's and he 74 has been, and exactly, she was 25, 25, 26. Yeah. And he has been involved in all these issues. So uh, he comes at this having already been woven into a lot of things uh, that are happening in Britain. Uh, he's already set out uh, how he wants to uh, approach the role. He has been very helpful on the climate agenda, and he has been able to move the dial in certain areas. The other thing he has really cared about has been how young people are trained, 
you know, we've had the Prince's Trust in America. We wait to see uh, how those organisations will evolve. But I think you don't lose all that experience of how to make a difference. And I'm sure uh, he will give very wise counsel uh, to the Prime Minister. She will have a regular audience, possibly weekly, uh, with the King. And I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about. Well, you honor us with your presence here today, and we thank you so much. And please extend our, our condolences to the people of the UK from all of us here uh, at CNN. Thank you so much for being here. And we thank should you. note that uh, Ambassador Pierce will be a guest on Sunday on State of the Union, along with the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Senator Mark Warner, who chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee. That's Sunday morning at 9, in, 9 Eastern, live at noon as well, here on CNN. Thank you so much again. Coming up next, what Britons are saying about their new king and what they want to see from him and a new era of the monarchy. Plus, invitations are soon to go out for the Queen's funeral. President Biden is expected to get one. What about some of his predecessors? Stay with us. A touching tribute to Queen Elizabeth's remarkable life by Sir Elton John, knighted by Her Majesty in 1998, a year after his friend, Princess Diana's tragic death. Take a listen. I'm, you know, 75. She's been with me all my life. And I feel very sad that she won't be with me anymore. But I'm glad she's at peace. And I'm glad she's at rest. And she deserves it. She's worked bloody hard. Let's bring in CNN Scott McLean. He's outside Windsor Castle. Scott, how is the British public that you've been encountering out there, how are they feeling on King Charles's first full day as king? Hey, Jake, I think that the thought of King Charles is finally starting to sink in uh, amongst people, although they are under no illusions about just how big the shoes are that he is trying to fill. He also brings his share of challenges as well. He is not as popular as his mother was, not as popular as his son, Prince William, either. And he also brings to the role some baggage. There's everything that happened with Princess Diana. There's the fact that he's been more politically outspoken than his mother. And there's more recent controversies, like the one that bubbled up this summer, where he accepted a million pound donation through his charitable uh, foundation from the family of Osama bin Laden. But if you ask people here, they say they're willing to put all of that in the past and they say that Charles will be a good king if you give him time. Here's some of the things that I heard from people earlier today. I would rather that the Queen was still alive, um, but uh, other than that, I think he'll make a very good king. Charles, um, well... I would have preferred William, actually, to be the, the um, king, but um, it is what it is. Why do you prefer Will? Yeah, I think he's more um, uh, suitable for the job. But if I had, the, had to choose between the two, I would have uh, gone for William. Well, that would be hard for him to rein his thoughts in, I think, because he's quite outspoken about things, has been. I think we need to get behind him, give him a chance to be the, the king that he can be, um, and look forward, not look back. It's after 10 o'clock here and people are still showing up to pay their respects to Queen Elizabeth II. Jake, I also asked people about their response to King Charles's pre-recorded speech today. And the word that I heard more often than anything else is reassuring, that this will go a long way toward reassuring the public who might be skeptical about Prince Char- or King Charles's abilities to do the job, that he is in fact fit. They thought that the words seemed heartfelt and the tone seemed just right. Jake? All right, Scott McLean at Windsor Castle for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a humanitarian crisis on an unimaginable scale, one that the whole world needs to see, and we will show it to you. 
And our world leader, a number so large, it's tough to imagine. 33 million. 33 million people suffering from the flooding disaster in Pakistan. And while the rain has thankfully stopped the floodwaters that have accumulated, well, they have nowhere to go. Main roads now turned into swollen rivers make it nearly impossible for aid to get to those who need it most desperately. CNN's Clarissa Ward reports from one of the hardest hit provinces in southeast Pakistan. The rains have stopped in Sindh province, but the waters are not subsiding. The city of Sewan had been something of a sanctuary for some of the more than six million people displaced by the floods in this region. Now the main highway has become a waterway. Smaller roads into the city are choked with traffic. So you can see there's just a steady stream of vehicles pouring into this area. These are all people who are desperately trying to escape their villages, which are now completely submerged underwater. Pakistan is responsible for less than 1% of the world's emissions, but it is paying a stiff price for global warming. Heavy monsoon rains and melting glaciers have left nearly a third of this country underwater, wiping out villages like Seta. When the floods hit, residents carried whatever they could save to a narrow strip of land by the roadside. So this is how you're living now. Inam Seto has been living in a makeshift shelter for over a week. There's no gas to cook what little food they have left. Outside aid has yet to arrive, and the prospects of returning home anytime soon are dim. It's very painful to see, but where can we go, he says. This is my ancestral village. A few miles down the road, locals are racing to stay ahead of the relentless waters. The government left them sand to make sandbags, but little other assistance, overstretched by the unprecedented scale of the crisis. So just so I understand, you are building up these dikes to try to stop that water from completely destroying your village. There's too much water coming in, Imran Uto tells us, and we're afraid of it. He's showing how deep it is. Can you see how deep that is? One man plunges into the flood water to show how high the waters are. The flooding here has now reached its cruelest phase. The days no longer bring rain, but nor do they bring relief. And for the many who have lost everything, there is nothing to do but wait. Now, the U.N. Secretary General, Jake, has been visiting Pakistan today, and he had some really strong words for the international community, essentially saying that the support that has been given to Pakistan before is only just a drop in the ocean in terms of what they need. And he said that this isn't a matter of solidarity. This is a matter of justice because Pakistan is paying such a high price for the climate crisis. According to the Pakistani Pakistani army, some $30 billion has already been spent and counting on relief efforts. And one thing I thought was interesting, Jake, many of the people we spoke to have been displaced say they don't want to go back home even after the waters recede because they don't want to invest more time, more money, more resources into rebuilding their homes only to have this happen all over again the next monsoon season potentially, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward in Karachi, Pakistan. Thank you for that important report. Coming up, the Bidens, the Obamas, 
What about the Trumps? Who will be on the official invite list for the Queen's funeral from the United States? Stay with us. And our politics lead, just 60 days to go until the midterms, and President Biden is slamming Republicans who have taken credit for projects made possible by the $1.2 billion bipartisan infrastructure law that those Republicans voted against. There are a lot more Republicans taking credit for that bill than we actually voted for it. I see them out there, and now we're going to build this new bridge here. We're all for it. And by the way, this new road, and we're going to have an internet that's going to be all the way. I love them, man. They ain't got no shame. Today, President Biden traveled to the key battleground state of Ohio to tout another bipartisan achievement. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live for us at the White House. Caitlin, before Biden's visit, Congressman Tim Ryan, a Democrat running for Senate in Ohio, he made some interesting remarks about whether President Biden should run for re-election. Yeah, he did, Jake. And obviously they were questions or remarks that the White House was paying close attention to. The president was in Ohio today for the opening of a semiconductor facility. But obviously there is a political lens to everything, Jake. And Ohio is a place where there is a big Senate race happening with Tim Ryan running against J.D. Vance for that Senate seat. This is a race, of course, in a state where Trump won handily in the last two elections. So it's, it was seen as a pretty tough battle for Democrats. And so you've seen Tim Ryan kind of distancing himself, not just from his party, but also from President Biden. He did not appear with him at an event in Ohio several months ago. He was there with President Biden today, but it was a comment that he made before President Biden arrived in Ohio that caught everyone's attention, where he was asked if he believed that President Biden should run for re-election. And Tim Ryan said, quote, my hunch is we need new leadership across the board, Democrats, Republicans. I think it's time for a generational move. And obviously, Jake, you can guess how the White House read that, especially given Tim Ryan had distanced himself from Biden earlier this year, now appearing with him today at the opening of this facility. He was asked when he was there about those comments and trying to walk them back a bit, Jake, saying, quote, I don't think this is breaking news. The president said from the very beginning he was going to be a bridge to the next generation, which is basically what I was saying. Uh Uh-huh. Sure it is. All right. Caitlin Collins (laughs) at the White House. Thanks so much. Let's discuss. Before we get to that, there's something that is just like fascinating me, which is the notion that it's going to be basically left up to President Biden as to whether or not he brings other presidents with him to the Queen's funeral. I mean, the, 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 the UK has made it very clear that's up to the president. He's invited and he can bring whatever delegation. So obviously Obama, you know, Carter, uh, Bush, no brainers. What about Trump? Will he invite Trump? We'll see. I mean, that is a difficult uh, question of protocol of diplomacy. But I am told by a couple of diplomatic officials that, uh, look, the, the uh, Buckingham Palace is leaving it up to every country individually. I mean, you know, imagine the nightmare of trying to do former presidents and former you know, defense ministers. But in, the, in this case, it would be an easy solution if Trump wasn't in the picture. We'll see what they do. I mean, President Obama, when he was in office, he invited a President Bush, President Clinton, President Carter to go with him to Nelson Mandela's funeral as part of the of the delegation. So there is protocol for having U.S. presidents invite other presidents. Who knows? Maybe in the spirit of, uh, of uh, forgiving and giving, uh, President Biden will invite uh, Donald uh, Trump on the Air Force One. I doubt that'll happen, but I do expect some type of a bipartisan delegation. But look, they are leaving it to the White House, we're told. The White House is saying we're not going to say anything about this until the palace makes funeral arrangements. But by Monday, uh, they're going to have to figure this out because the funeral time will be announced tomorrow. See, I think, Yasmin, I think that the the Vet, the, the clever move 
is to invite him. Yes. And then see if he goes. And see if he goes. I don't think President Trump, former President Trump, would want to be subordinate on Air Force One. And I think probably he prefers his own plane anyway. What do you think? I think that's probably true. Um, I think, like Jeff said, it's a really tricky situation for the president. I mean, President Trump still has not acknowledged that President Biden is the rightful president. <laughs> right. right. So, <laughs> well, yeah, that's a problem. So while there's precedent for inviting you know, presidents from, from both parties, this is quite a different situation. And these two are likely, you know, more than likely to face each other um, in, a, in a few months. I don't know that that would matter so much if the President Trump hadn't insisted that he won the 2020 election and continue to insist and kind of want to die on that hill. Um, but, you know, this this is a president who President Biden believes in, in protocol and, and following precedent. So he, he might end up inviting President Trump and, and leave it up to him. Speaking of dying on the hill, I mean, this is also a, a former president who staged incited an insurrection in which people lost their lives on Capitol Hill. Agreed. I still think Biden might invite him and probably will. But, Jake, there's no way Trump goes. There's no way. Because why? He wouldn't want to sit on Air Force One with a bunch of other former presidents. As you said, he'd rather fly his own plane. Sure. He doesn't want to be there with a big crowd. Well, what, do you, if you were advising President Biden, what would you tell him to do? Send him the invitation at the very last minute, the day he's boarding <laughs> Air Force One. <laughs> oh, the plane took off already. <laughs> right, okay. Um, so, uh, Yasmin, let me, let me talk about uh, President Biden in Ohio today touting legislative achievements at an event attended by Congressman uh, Tim Ryan, who suggested the president step aside for 2024, um, although he's now walking that back. Awkward. What do you think? I think the White House was probably happy that Tim Ryan decided to show up at this event at all, given that they weren't sure and Tim Ryan hadn't showed up to previous events. A lot of these um, Senate and House candidates have wanted to distance themselves from President Biden, so it was probably a show of good faith that he showed up. And of course, it's it's a good thing. They're opening a, a manufacturing plant in Ohio. Um, but I think, you know, this Tim Ryan's comments today highlight, you know, one of the challenges that Democrats are going to face in the next couple of months, which is they're going to keep getting asked this question of whether President Biden should run for reelection. President, the president has signaled he probably will run and intends to run. Um, but, you know, his, his approval rating is coming back up. It's still not great. Um, so I think a lot of Democrats are trying to sort of strike this balance of they don't want to distance themselves entirely, but they also don't want to be too tethered to him. Yeah, but the climate's changing. You're right. Tim Ryan wouldn't have gone anywhere near Biden three or four months ago. Biden's on a roll. He's in a much better position now heading into these midterms. So I think you're going to see Democrats starting to warm up to him. You agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, between what's happening with Trump and all these investigations, mm-hmm. with some of these achievements that we talk about from, you know, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and him continuing to campaign on things that we have been able to get done with a slim majority in the House and the Senate. And then, you know, with the Dobbs decision, people are paying attention to what's happening to abortion rights, student loan forgiveness. That's going to actually engage young supporters. So I think Democrats and particularly President Biden, you're going to see him uh, campaigning a lot more. And some Senate Democrats or, or can- candidates, excuse me, they're going to actually embrace some of what the party is, is leading with. Now, I will say, I think in some space, some states, you have to be a little bit careful. Um, these states aren't easy to get around. And so we saw that in Wisconsin, where Mandela Barnes, a friend of mine who was probably going to win that election, you know, he had to actually go talk to voters as Biden was in the state, <laughs> which is a strategy, right? You want as many surrogates out there talking to as many voters as possible. So you're going to see these candidates embracing uh, President Biden and this cabinet.
cabinet and the DNC. And so it should be interesting. We see this dance every midterm election, every presidential campaign. Look, the reality is you're going to be labeled a Democrat. You get the downside for Biden coming in. So why not get the upside for being there? And look, this was announcement uh, in Ohio of a lot of jobs coming in. So for Tim Ryan, if he's going to, this is part of his narrative. Like he's not, you know, it, it fits with his brand. We've seen a lot of Democrats like uh, Anilla Barnes you know, say, oh, he's too busy. That works a couple times. But the reality is you're labeled a Democrat, so you might as well get the, the plus from that. Perhaps a picture with Air Force One or the president, as well as the downside, which obviously comes with being you know, um, in the uh, president's party. Explain to me the Mandela Barnes calculation, because he's to the left of President Biden. It's not, I mean, Tim Ryan is, is trying to run to, to Biden's right. He's trying mm-hmm. to run as a centrist. Uh, but Mandela Barnes is very progressive. Oh, absolutely he is. And so, you know, he is one that has come out and said that he is supportive of getting rid of the filibuster to protect a lot of critical rights that are, are up for debate right now. You know, I think Mandela is one of those candidates who is young. He's progressive. He also knows how to not only talk to the progressive base, but he also knows how to talk to rural voters in Wisconsin. I mean, he won lieutenant governor. So he knows how to kind of like Stacey Abrams, who has a progressive record but is able to talk in these very like swing districts and these places that might have more moderate Democrats. And so the Mandela piece, I think he's a really smart guy. I think he's a great campaigner. And I think he knows exactly what he's doing to have support from moderate party Democrats, as well as the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders of the world. And so hopefully he can build this broader coalition because of what he believes. I think one of the issues here also in both in Wisconsin and in Ohio is the relative weakness of the Republican candidates. Not that, by the way, not that Neither of them is going to win. I have no idea. But I've seen both states put up much stronger uh, Senate candidates in the past. They're election deniers. I mean, overwhelmingly around the country, Republicans have put up election deniers, which play well in primaries, but don't attract people in the general. That's a real problem. Although Ron Johnson has a tendency, uh, <laughs> you know, of being reelected despite being down in the polls. Yeah. It happened with Russ Feingold. We saw it in 2010, again in 16. So even though uh, he's been able to probably thread the needle much more than I've seen anyone else be able to do it, his Washington persona and his home state Wisconsin persona. And there is sort of a difference in that. So, uh, you know, he's down a little bit right now, but I don't know that I'd call him a weak candidate. I mean, he's uh, an incumbent. Relative. Relative, I imagine. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I've just seen we've seen stronger candidates. Uh, and uh, well, well, but again, those, I wouldn't put money on either sure. either race, either candidate. Thanks to one and all. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend to one and all of you. Coming up next, an arrest in that horrific murder of a Las Vegas investigative reporter and the DNA evidence that might be key in learning what happened right before the murder. Stay with us. Internationally, a Las Vegas investigative journalist who was stabbed to death had his alleged killer's DNA underneath his fingernails. This shocking revelation coming out in the arrest report. Clark County, Nevada, public administrator Robert Tellis has been arrested and charged in the murder of Las Vegas Review-Journal reporter Jeff Gurman. Gurman, who had written about mobsters, murderers, and corrupt government officials for decades, shining his light on their malfeasance. He had written about allegations of wrongdoings by Tellus as well. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Las Vegas with a closer look now at what led to German's gruesome killing. According to court documents, Las Vegas Review-Journal reporter Jeff German had just walked out of his home when investigators allege Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellus attacked him. German's body was found with approximately seven sharp force injuries to his body. This is a terrible and jarring homicide. 
The court documents reveal that German also suffered wounds on his arms and that Telus's DNA was found on the reporter's hands, suggesting a struggle. The DNA from Mr. Telus was found on the hands and perhaps under the fingernails of Mr. Gill. Robert Tellis, the Clark County Public Administrator, has been charged with murder. In May, German published an investigative report about the chaotic working environment under Tellis's leadership. He reported that the Public Administrator's office was, quote, mired in turmoil and internal dissension over the past two years, with allegations of emotional stress, bullying, and favoritism leading to secret videotaping of the boss and a co-worker outside the office. We knew that as an investigative reporter, he had written several articles and there were different allegations and statements about potential people that would be upset about it. German's body was found last Saturday, but it wasn't immediately clear that Tellus might be the suspect. Then, investigators discovered video of a vehicle registered to Tellus's wife driving around German's home around the time of the murder, and clothing matching the suspect's description was found inside Tellus's home. As you can see, there's apparent blood on the shoes, and the shoes were cut, likely in a manner to try to destroy evidence. Tellus had denied the accusations raised in German's reporting, but this summer lost his Democratic primary bid to get re-elected. German's colleagues at the Las Vegas Journal-Review say they're outraged and helped in the case by identifying on Google Maps a maroon SUV in Tellus's driveway, which matched the description given by authorities. Tellus got quite a bit of time in the story um, to talk to Jeff. His, his points of view were represented. Um, and there wasn't any corrections or anything factually wrong with the story. He just didn't like that we were holding him accountable as a public official. And Jake, we understand that Jeff German was working on a follow-up story related to Robert Tellis's time as the public administrator here in Clark County, Nevada. So uh, exactly what was in that story, we don't know yet, but we do know that Tellis remains in jail. We're, uh, we are told that he will r remain there. He's being held without bond, Jake. You saw the suspect in court today. What, tell us what his demeanor was like. Well, his, uh, the suspect made a, a, an initial appearance uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, that is where the judge told him uh, that he was going to be held w without bond. Um, and that's where the prosecutor started laying out some of the more the, more the details that we've learned about this uh, murder. But throughout the entire time, Tellus was behind a glass-plated window. Uh, he showed no emotion, seemed very stoic as he stood there and listened to the conversation in the courtroom, Jake. All right. Ed Levandera in Las Vegas for us. Thanks so much. Intense flames out of control in drought-stricken California. How a tropical storm just off the coast could actually make matters worse. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, for 10 straight days, Californians have been asked to limit their energy usage in order for the state to avoid widespread rolling blackouts amid a sweltering heat wave in that state. This is several wildfires burning out of control. And now a tropical storm that could bring a year's worth of rain, causing dangerous flash floods and strong winds, and might make the fires even worse. Let's bring in CNN's Nick Watt, who's near the Fairview Fire in Hemet, California, and Camilla Burnell in Pine Valley, California. Nick, to you first. Uh, is the weather from this tropical storm, is there any way it could help this fire situation? 
Yeah, Jake, listen, this storm could either be a huge help or a massive problem for the people, for the 2,000 personnel fighting this fire. Why? Well, because the storm is going to bring winds. We are forecast between now and nightfall to have gusts of up to 70 miles an hour. They, of course, will whip the flames, spread it and make it harder to fight. But if we get a lot of rain from this storm, that would, of course, be a help. One and a half inches forecast between now and Sunday night. We had a bit of a couple of hours of drizzle this morning, but nothing much to write home about. Nothing much that's going to really help. I've got to say, this is the weirdest week of weather in Southern California in the 10 years that I have lived here. We had a team out here on Tuesday. It was 106 degrees. Today, it dropped down to 71 this afternoon. That, of course, is a great help in trying to fight the fire. This just one of 14 fires in the state right now. Two dead already, 27,000 acres burned. We will see how the storm impacts. Now, the other curveball here, of course, is if we get too much rain, then that causes a mudslide potential. They have evacuated some houses here. They have closed schools just in case. You know, it is an age-old problem. You get too much water falling in burn scars. That can be devastating. We saw it back in 2018 in Montecito here in California. Mudslides in burn scars killed 23 people. So hopefully this storm will help douse these flames. We will see over the next few hours. And hopefully, fingers crossed, none of those mudslides. Jake. All right, Nick. Uh, Camilla, while the rain might help with the wildfires and then the ongoing drought, we certainly hope so, there is this other risk, of course, that it could bring dangerous floods and what we know is a big problem in California, mudslides. Yeah, Jake, the concern here is too much water in a short period of time. And what that causes is the dangerous flooding. The creeks and the rivers, they rise very quickly. And then you have uh, the debris flows from the mountains, especially in those areas that have been impacted by the fire. Here throughout the day, what we've been seeing is the wind and the rain picking up sporadically. I want to show you what some of that wind damage looks like because there are already crews in the area cleaning up, trying to take care of that debris. Uh, The wind sometimes is so strong that it essentially rips out the trees from the ground. So we've been seeing a lot of this throughout the area. And then I do want to go back to the rain because, uh, as Nick mentioned, we're expecting also between two and four inches of rain in this area. In some parts, up to eight inches. That's six months to a year's worth of rain. So there's a huge concern because it's too much too quickly. Of course, that is desperately needed rain, but it could be dangerous. Jake. All right, Camilla Bernal and Nick White in California for us. Thank you so much. And our sports lead, the ongoing generational change in professional tennis will be on full display this evening at the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. On one side of the court will be 24-year-old Francis Tiafo, who smashed his way into everyone's radar and hearts when he beat 22-time Grand Slam champion Rafael Nadal in his way to tonight's semifinals. Tiafo, the son of immigrants who has a child, sometimes had to sleep at the tennis center where his father was a custodian is the first American to reach a U.S. Open men's semifinal since 2006. And he's the first black American man to make the semis since Arthur Ashe in 1972. Now, Tiafo is going to face another phenom, rising Spanish star Carlos Alcaraz, who is only 19 years old, but ranked number four in the world. He reached the semis after winning a five-hour, 15-minute quarterfinal match. Man, that ended at nearly 3 a.m. yesterday morning. They have played each other once before. That was last year, and Tiafo was the victor then. This weekend, join CNN as we note the remarkable career of another tennis icon, Serena Williams, 
Serena Williams on her terms. That's Sunday night at 8 o'clock p.m., only here on CNN. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on the TikTok, TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcast, just sitting there like a, like a juicy peach. Our coverage now continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you next week. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.